Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers, aimed to give you the story behind the story. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Hello, everybody. This is Tembela Mbata um, coming to you live on the PageCast, which is a podcast brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. I'd like to send a special shout out to all my bookster friends if you're listening. Today, we are joined by a lovely guest who is an author, a writer, agriculturist, public speaker, and a pioneer with an unquenchable passion for Kosa heritage and culture. She's the founder of Homba Crafts and refers to herself as a Kosa culture ambassador. She is a double master. She has a double master's degree in agriculture, climate change, and transition from the National University of Ireland and University of Montpellier Subagro in France. She has published two books, The Dissonant Rainbow, published in 2019, and To My Young Self in 2020. She currently lives in Bulungula on the Wild Coast, where she works for an NGO to provide rural schools with access to clean water and sanitation. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming who I will be chatting to about her newly launched book titled Don't Upset Omalume. Welcome, Messi. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Tamela. Thank you so much for welcoming me. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm happy to be Yes, it, it's, it's both a privilege and a pleasure for me to be chatting to you about this book today, as I've been beaming with pride and joy ever since it landed on my lap. And I mean, I've been inboxing you and saying all kinds of things yeah. because... I can't believe, um, you know, something like this exists. Um, so I'm very excited to get into the chat with you just to understand your thought process and just the creative process in, in writing something like this. So how how does it feel for you to have it in hand? Yeah, it feels amazing. Finally, uh, when someone asks me something about the closer culture, I can refer them because I had received a lot of questions about different topics in, in Tosa and it is difficult to say, okay, I'm going to explain to you, but now I can just say, go to exclusive books, go to books, go Yes, and there's a section of, so of that. So, I mean, for me, if you ask me what this book means to me, especially just after reading it from cover to cover, it feels like a dream come true. It feels like you've answered a prayer. You know, because I remember a time when the start of the pandemic and, you know, people were getting sick and all kinds of things. And I always go back to, you know, how my grand raised us and she'd always have sort of remedy or and she'll go into a garden and she'll come back with something that would help ail whatever you were going through. So I always thought, OK, now when my grand had passed away, what and where would I go to get that knowledge? And you've come up with this book and I'm like oh my gosh <laughs> that is why I feel like it's yeah. an answered prayer for me I don't know I feel like the generation that you know our mothers and all of them are quite westernized and they don't really they always feel like they're so almost unsure of what it is they have some knowledge but not to the extent of which you've gone through in this book 
So I want to try and um, without fangirling too much, um, I've been taking it with me everywhere. I've just come <laughs> back from the Eastern Cape <laughs> a few days ago and I sat in the sun and I ate umfino from my mom's garden while I was mm. reading it. So I would want to understand from you when the idea to create a book like this occurred, for you, um, occurred to you. And Yeah, thank you for that question and thank you for, for the compliments. Uh, I <laughs> hoped the book would do that. So the idea of the book starts when I come back from studies in Ireland and France and I get back to the country in December 2018 and mm. I'm excited with a double master's degree international and I'm like, yeah, I'm surely going to score a good job, you know, a good paying job and mm. I get back to the country. First, it takes one year to verify my degrees, which was uh, super stressful with Saka and yeah. yeah. And then after that, I was like, okay, 2020, finally, I can look for a job. And then the pandemic hits, you know. So before that, uh, I think in December 2019, I was like, you know what? After living in Tata with my brother and his wife, I was like, mm. I'm just going back home to live with my mom because this is just not working. I'm pushing and nothing is happening. And when I get back home, I'm scared. I'm like, what's going to happen to me? You know, like, did I go to study to come live in the village and, and all that and all the questions we ask ourselves. Am I doing the right thing? And then uh, in the morning, I'm like, wow, this is a beautiful view, you know, and I'm taking pictures and mm. I'm like, yo, beautiful dish of food. And I'm like taking pictures. And then I, I, I guess my mother as a mom, she figured that I was quite stressed and in, in, in a dark hole. So she spotted that, oh, she loves taking pictures of things of traditional things and she would call me all the time when she when there's something outside something unusual something funny beautiful sunrise she's like do you want to take a picture and i would take <laughs> these pictures and i would make stories that i would post on my social media and then within no time maybe in a few weeks people were like we want more post something what do you have in mind to do <laughs> and it became like this beautiful platform uh, where people are able to learn about the Kosa culture. So it was just memories of my childhood coming back at me, you know, like if I had a headache, my mom would disappear into the garden, get a herb, like you spoil some water, pour it in and give it to me. And I'm like, oh, this works, you know. But to be back in the village, it's like a beautiful marriage between the two because people know when to go to the clinic. Clinics are very far. Have your try in the traditional medicine and if something yes. persists so it doesn't work, then you're like, okay, that's fine. I'm going to go to the clinic. But people always have a solution. And then I find myself in that setup and I find myself with people in my social media buzzing to learn more. This is getting, it's becoming a lot now. And I'm like, in a nice way. And then I start just taking my posts, compiling them on Google Docs and starting to write a book. And yeah, that's how the book wow. came about. Because people are like, please write this as a book. Because I was like, ah, oh, guys. And I mean, it's funny because my previous books uh, started on social media, but again, for some reason, I never see it. And I'm like, oh, oops, by the way. <laughs> I guess social media really does play that huge and vital role in just educating yeah. and sharing knowledge and stories. So yeah, I'm exactly. glad that your people had spoken to you and, um, you know, you came yeah. up with this book because, wow, it's really it's really an important book, man. And um, I think it's got a long lifespan as well. So it sounds like you had, you know, some kind of assistance and people sharing knowledge with you and all of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, writing is a lonely place. I normally say when I define it that I, 
go through dark holes. Uh, as, as much as it has been an interactive book, but to write and transcribe everything, you sit alone. And I normally write overnight, like throughout the night, because that's the most quiet time. And yeah, I won't yeah. find disturbance from my phone notifications and emails and everything. So it is the dark hole. I do find um, whenever I write a book, I go into spaces uh, and, and dark holes that I feel like I come out a different person all the time. Because in writing, for some reason, whatever topic I write about, I normally go back to my childhood. And going to childhood sometimes brings those triggers, those traumas and, and, and everything. And yeah. you find yourself sitting in the middle of the night, unpacking it and trying to relate it to whatever you're writing about. So, yeah, I've had my huge portion of dark phases and dark moments. Yeah, like, I mean, just reading the book and just, for me, it felt like I was just listening to you sitting and you had the mic and, and you know, just yeah, taking yeah. us through what you've learned. And also, like, the little idioms that you include here and there, because I've met my dad and heard someone say, you know, a certain saying in passing. And I was like, oh, that's why they say a certain thing like that. Like, um, so, I mean, I, I really appreciate things like that. So I can imagine that it needs some quiet time and you just <laughs> tending to yourself and thinking back a lot. So what was the, the most surprising thing that you learned while creating this book? That's quite a difficult question. The, but there has been <laughs> surprising things uh, about... Uh, my culture or about people specifically because I would be just sitting and asking questions from elder women that are working at the lodge because I spent time with them, three months with them on, in 20, towards the end of 2020. And then mm. we'll be talking about girls' abduction, you know, uh, how it used to happen. And to me, it feels very far because, I mean, it never happened to me and it never happened to people very close to me. So it always felt like yeah. the girl next door was abducted something very far. And then I would chat, 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 mm. chat, and then the elder mama would say, actually, that's how I got married. And I'm like, oh, that happened at 15. And I'm like, oh my God, that just came very close. <laughs> so to me, it's mm. been stories of the people I was asking from that felt so, because, I mean, of course, when you're writing about culture, it feels like, oh, something, something ancient, something very far. And then yeah. if someone was in their, actually in their 50s, and they tell you about all these scary things that happened to them when they were children and being a girl and being forced to marriage or your father taking you out of school because you're a woman, you're a girl and mm. you can't be educating you. It's a waste because you're going to be taken by another family, things like that. So I think that for me, I still can't get over it, the fact that these things yeah. happen to the people we live with. And to them, it's like, oh, it's culture. I mean, what were we supposed to do, you know? And with with grief, but it's like, whatever it would be, it would be. Whatever it was, was, you know? That has been very interesting for me. With that being said, and talking to, to women in itself, and um, because there's so many inequalities in within our culture, right? When it comes to um, how women are treated, and it's things, like you're saying, they kind of, you know, let it go, and... Mm -hmm people move on and um, so I mean having grown up in a village myself I can account to some inequalities or rather toxic behaviors that women have endured and continue to experience um, today. With that said what are you hoping we can do as this generation to make our culture more inclusive of women 
Um, I, I'll give you an example of, of myself, just being a newly wedded closer wife. And when I got married, there was a long list of things um, that I was expected by um, my new family. They had, you know, like expectations of me, my appearance. I was given new clothes to wear. Um, and when it comes to my husband, and obviously he's now met, you know, married with within my family or is they are his in-laws, right? So he's not expected to to dress up a certain way. He's, he remains. Isn't that, you know, an equality in itself? I've oh. questioned things like that. And, um, yeah, I'm hoping to get more of your insight on something like that. And how can we reassess these gender roles within our culture? Yeah, so it's, it's funny that you ask this because I always say, I doubt if I'll ever marry, marry into my culture because there's just so much uh, bullying, you know, towards women. Uh, I think uh, mm-hmm. I command and I take you people who marry into our culture as brave because, I mean, it's ridiculous what's expected mm-hmm. of women. But honestly, Absolutely. the first thing uh, I'd like uh, that our generation should, should look uh, into is uh, Lobola, the bride price. Uh, mm. Is it something necessary? Is it is it not a transaction now that uh, elders use to buy and sell whatever whoever they want and what they want to get out of it? And when I look at it, it's such a frustration to the newlyweds because the husband has to take a loan. I mean, we have no cars right now. He has to take a loan to mm. be able to to pay that bride price, and uh, the prices on our heads as educated women, independent and all that, they are quite big, you know. I once asked my mom at some point, uh, how much am I worth? And from the top of her head, she was like 100,000. And I was like, oh my God, that's a lot of money. You know, and and I'm like, I told her that, oh, that means my husband would starve before he gets that money, you know, in debt when we were newly wedded. And she was like, how is it your business? And I'm like, it's my business because I'm getting to... If I'm starting a family from a debt, you know. Elders feel very defensive. It's culture. It's something that's been done over time. And they feel like it has to continue. But it's really against us. If you realize now, in our culture, the, the, the partnership, the companionship in the, in the marriage relationship in our culture, because it's so much in, there's so much inequality. When a man marries, uh, he gets someone to, to look after him, to work for him, to do his laundry, to cook for him, to do everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when a woman marries, she has nobody to do anything for her. She becomes a slave. Because as a newly wedded woman, you're expected to rise up early and sleep late after everyone. You do the dishes, you make tea, you wash the, you do the laundry and do everything. And I'm like, what the heck? Because we're both working, you know, your husband and you are both working. You go out yeah. in the morning to work and you come back. Each of you are tired. So I don't see why then you should slave away after you come back because you have to take care of a man i think for me mercy more than anything it's the fact that it can't be shared amongst each other it's yeah. almost frowned That's upon that a man can be seen mm. in the kitchen doing kitchen you know okay. their household why is it something that is it makes no exactly. sense yeah the relationship that is very unequal we need to look into that yeah. generation. I do think there is hope. I do think uh, people are stuck, but I think we should be deliberate and talk more about it and create spaces that encourage it. Being wedded into a family that is quite open-minded, I've been able to talk to, you know, them about, you know, 
you know, how certain things make me feel. And I think that isn't something that's quite um, been done before. It's it's always about what they want and what they need. All the words come out and you're, you're labeled for being a difficult person. But I mean... For, for sticking out for yourself. Yes. And I think, who, who's going to stick up for me if I don't? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So, Mercy, talk us through the title of the book, Don't Upset Omalumeo. How did you come up with that title? Uh, yeah, Don't Upset Omalumeo. Actually, we're playing around the title with Annie and uh, Charles uh, because we're trying to find a title that fits the book because you can see that the book is very light and not heavy mm. and just playful and jokey. So, yeah, we had a couple of titles that came and Don't Upset Omalumeo's uh, was the one who all said, okay, we love it. Because mm. we we're brainstorming, we kept brainstorming, email, like, this is what I'm thinking, three titles I'm thinking about, blah, 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 okay. And then don't assert the number one, yeah. boom, okay, that's it. We are, we are taking this one. It's so it's in the context that um, as a child or a person who lives in the big cities uh, starting there, when you come to the village, you know, these coconut kids who come back and they can't speak Kosa mm. and Malume, I mean, his English is not... Uh, on top of his game, <laughs> mm. and he's struggling to hear this child with this Popeye accent. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, don't upset Malume. You should just step up your closer game. When you go to the village to talk mm. to Malume, you should impress Malume. So it's about that. And Malume, because in our culture, you know that our families are women-headed, like single women. So the father figures yeah. become Malume, that is uncles, uh, mothers, brothers. So. Uh, it's, yeah, it's in that context. No, I love it a lot. <laughs> it really does stick. Um, and I don't think anyone can forget it once they've seen it. So you speak highly of your mom and your grandmother in the book, which I really admire, and the lessons that they've passed on to you, including the gift of Inglio, translated as the Virgin Girls bead cover. Um, can you share more about the responsibility that comes with you having to nurture and guide the youth about this cover um, and also just the generations to come in your family when it, you're needing to pass it on. Yeah, so yeah, you know, when my mother gave me Inkoyo, it was out of the yellow uh, completely. I didn't think of it. I knew <clears> that <throat> she had it in our, in our property, but it was none of my business. It was her Inkoyo, her own. It's like an underwear. It was an underwear like when she yeah. was young, in the, in the 70s, late 60s, 70s. She gave it to me that day. That was when I was home, actually, when I had moved, from, moved home. So I think she was looking for mm-hmm. anything to light up my day, to make me happy. And she had already realized my line of interest, that is culture. And mm-hmm. when she gave it to me, my mother is a person of few words, but when she gave it to me, she said, uh, when you go to do these talks in the places that you talk about, because I already was doing public speaking, show mm-hmm. people this and, and tell them this is what your mother wore. This is what we wore in our time. And nobody raped us. So she was like, rape is not about what you're wearing. It's about someone's issues, you know. It's about someone's cruelty. And mm-hmm. that really stuck with me. That statement, she was not giving to me, it to me to say, oh, you should remain a virgin. But she was saying, when you talk about rape, show people what we wore. Yeah. And they will understand that it's not about what a girl is wearing, you know. And so that became such a big thing. And uh, that interior was made by my grandmother. My grandmother was a bead maker, my mother's mom. And my mother had never been, <laughs> she, didn't make, she didn't like beads. 
And mm. uh, so to see something that was made by my grandmother, something so sacred and special. And it it's still like when I look at it, it still had uh, red clay because she dipped it. There was that style, the fashion of dipping things into red soil or the yellowish soil, the clay. When I touch it, I can still have the red soil remaining in my hands. And yeah, I can't explain how special that is to me because yeah. I realized that that was my grandmother making this piece of clothing mm. for her first daughter. My, my mother is the first child. And it's just so special that she handed it to her and that my mother is handing it to me, you know. It's a different message completely now because she was doing it for her child to just cover up, you know. And it was a proper cover at the time. And uh, yeah. now my mother giving it to me saying that, yeah, when you do your public speaking, show them this and to, 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 to rally this message. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. And it was actually my first time coming across something like I didn't know what it was called. I've always seen just images of how I, I never knew. I, I knew Isbish. Is that for men? That I, I never knew about Inkriyu, but I knew about Isbish. So when did your love for agriculture and sustainable living start? Uh, I grew up at home. My, my mother, she says when she was a young girl, she was planting spinach to sell so that she could have money to pay school fees. So um, you can imagine that uh, she grew with that and she got married into my family. My grandmother, my mom's, my father's dear mom. Yeah. She was mm. also like a badass farmer, like completely. <laughs> uh, when I grew up, all I remember is potatoes, a lot of potatoes when I was a child. My grandmother's mm. garden, we would go harvest potatoes and fruit trees everywhere, spinach. I grew up around food, a lot of food, like plant yeah. food, plant food. And when my mother moved and got her own plot to build, what the first thing she was wanting to do was to fence off the plot so that we can plant. So my mm. childhood is just planting, you know, and she would sell, you know. Uh, when I came back, uh, I went to boarding school in high school. When I came back home, uh, we, would pl- we would have planted stuff in January before you go. And then when I came back for Easter, there was, it was harvest time. And whoever got to the gate when someone was coming to buy something, the money was theirs. That's how my mother raised us, you know. You had to mm-hmm. be a salesperson, you know, be good with your words and get people to buy so that you can have money. So that's a setup yeah. I grew up. And, I mean, agriculture for me in high school was inevitable. It was, mm. it was just home. It was just home. And because I was like, I mean, if I have something that I like, that is production of food, there is no day that people will say, oh, I think I'm done eating today. So it's a business that's ongoing, you know. can never ever yeah. say, okay, people have edit, had enough of food for the next 20 years, business is bad, no. So mm. I was like, okay, this is lucrative <laughs> for me because I love <laughs> business in general. And yeah, and with passion, then everything is possible. I mean, I can see the passion coming through with your beads and with your whole brand of Uamba Crafts. When did that really start? Is it something you started as well once you came back from um, studying? Uh, Yes, actually, because uh, when I came back to the country, uh, 1st of December uh, 2018, I was left with my salary and I was like, oops, what am I going to do? It was my last time, I'm not even sorry. And I was like, okay, let me take my flight and go to Nairobi, go buy stuff. Because when I lived in Uganda uh, that yeah, the previous year, I had fallen in love with the crafts. And people kept saying, oh, we buy them from Nairobi, buy them from Nairobi. And I asked mm. where, and they told me the name. And I went to Nairobi because I have a friend there that I met uh, in a conference. And I was like, okay, that's it. 
Nairobi it is and I went yeah. and I stopped up some beads, came back to the country and I was selling stuff on my backpack going to those offices and, and things like that. So when things were broken, I would have to fix the beads. That's when I realized, oh, okay, I can do this. Mm. And I started my line of earrings. That was early, 20, early 2019. And then I, kept, I just kept going and I never stopped. I kept getting ideas and I would go on and on and on and on. Some pieces would sell like cupcakes and yeah, mm. it just started like that. Wow, no, that's really impressive. That's really like beadwork, and it's. I'm just always so super impressed with how people just sit for hours because I can imagine it doesn't yeah. take. It's not a weak thing. Mm. One must obviously yeah. <laughs> book in advance. So, having studied abroad and being the avid traveler that you are, when you're away from your village, what is the one thing that you miss about your village the most? For me, it's the sound of chickens waking us up and the smell of fresh cow dung, oblongo. I, I love food. I'm a foodie. So <laughs> the things I miss is normally inifino, uh, isopu. Like, I just miss food when I'm away. Mm. I normally I would normally take some nice stuff that I like when I, I travel, like chutney, raja, aromat, uh, raoiko soup, and just things that are going to remind me of home. So the first thing I'll think yeah. about is just, my mother's in Mosho and mm. gravy, like proper gravy. Oh, wow. like, oh, gosh. And, and, and speaking the language, you know, to just pause without mixing and stopping by, you know, in, in our culture, you know, that we stop when you greet an elderly person and then they'll talk. You, you just ask them, how are you, Makul? And mm. then they'll go on and on and on and on and on. You're like, okay. And listening to that, it's like them just talking and sharing a piece of themselves. Yeah. I would miss that. No, they're like, hi, how are you? Someone is not even answering. They're already going or they're just smiling yeah. and gone. And I'm like, can you just ask me how I am and pause and stop and listen to me? Mm-hmm. You know, so that, yeah, those are things I normally miss. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. I mean, when I read that part about the greetings and how important it is, it reminded me of my grandmother because she always made sure that when a visitor came to our house, we needed to um, just stop and go and greet them properly without just handing them the tea or whatever it is that mm. you were giving to them. You needed to properly um, impart some words and just be interested. Um, and I think that goes a long way, especially with just mm. what you're trying to impart with this book and trying to, you know, people must give the culture a chance, you know? Mm. Exactly. And learn what it is uh, that we we have. I mean, our forefathers have been doing for the years, and mm. it's just the richness that comes with it. Exactly. Yeah, you clearly wrote this book with people like myself in mind, <laughs> as the mm. new Makoti that I am. I appreciate yeah. the inclusion of the breakdown um, mm. of the attire what each garment represents. Um, I mean, for me, I I was told what it was just in passing Itakata and everything and what it means. Because, I mean, my mother will tell me, this is where you keep your secrets as she was dressing me and all of those things. So to have it in writing and just something I can refer mm-hmm. back to is just so empowering in itself. And I also really appreciate the fact that you included a whole section on clan names. Because this is something we as Kosa people take pride in knowing in Vela Pietro. Um, I want to understand, though, um, the whole section of Izidogo and how you've brought it down. Because you do mention that there is five different um, groups 
mm-hmm. of Kosa people. Can you maybe just roughly share share what the how you've broken down broken them down in this book? Yeah, so uh, I'd say I'll say first that I don't have all of Isidugo uh, mentioned in the book. So some people okay. are asking me, why is it that Isidugo-san is not there? And I'm like, that's what I could get in the in the archive was uh, accessing information from. And I didn't want to, I mean, okay. it's not very easy to get Isidugo. So this is what I could get. And I broke them down based on the, 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 the not the tribes, or the groups, Sabatembu, Amakosa, and all that. So I'm just breaking them into that because then in that way you okay. see where each person is coming from. You know, for example, Mapaka, you'll know that they're coming from Swaziland and that Mabongfane, most teachers, the clan, they came from KZN. So it's kind of like tracking because in his talk about when you're singing praises of the clan, it yes. tells you who came from who. Who that came from so and so, who came from this and that, and then in between they have jingles and plays that maybe there was a dirty one among them, there was a fighter, a warrior, there was a lover of cows, there was a lover of women, <laughs> you know. You you hear yes. that in the, in, in the praise. So if you if you if you take time to listen to the praise, you get to see who the it's not a stereotype, but you get to understand the group of people, you know. Uh, that, mm. Oh, these ones are famous of this. These ones, the Mam Chengu, they were said to be famous of uh, being learned and civilized and everything. And to this day, you see how um, their areas uh, are improved and in terms of structures, in terms of being in big offices. So you understand mm. who is who and why. And I think that's important. That's why in Posa, when you meet someone for the first time, what is your clan yes. name? And when they tell you their clan name, then associations come, you know, because people were always looking for marrying their daughters into this and that family. So when they are asking, they want to know if you are related or not. And if you are not related, then mm-hmm. they are looking for relations, you know. So this is the most beautiful thing. Even if you meet yes. Umpana, like a guy who's going to go out with you, who wants to date you, the first thing they'll ask, is this Tugo? And if you have the same clan name, then it's mission aborted because there's nothing you can do. Tugo is more important, I say, it's more important mm. than the surname. You can have different surnames because surnames are people's names that are handed down. But this Tugo remains the same. It's just one, yeah, one, one, one name that transcends surnames. So, yeah, this Tugo is very profound and yeah. amazing how what, what information you can get just from someone telling you is Tugo Sab. Which part of the book was the most fun to write for you? The one you are mostly excited about. <laughs> I love all the topics. The topic of food. <laughs> I cooked almost all the dishes I talk about there. I cooked them and I took the photos. So that for me was the most special one. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I really like the the fact that you do include all the pictures here. Also, mm-hmm. I mean. For someone who doesn't even know what you're speaking about, when you speak of yeah. Igogo, they're able to yeah. see. And when they do come to the village, they'll be able to see, oh, that's what they meant. And, yeah. 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 And for me, just what it means, what Igogo in itself means mm. to, to a woman. Um, like I said, there may have been some points where, as we've discussed earlier, that, you know, women aren't always seen in a positive life, light or aren't always treated you know, equally amongst the men in the culture, but there's so many important um, 
parts that we we embody that we um own and we give such power to um which is something i really admire about the culture um we have grounded uh thing about us as the Kosa women do you have any parting words for the book community and readers who would love to educate themselves about the rich Kosa culture uh yeah of course i mean uh, i've had people ask me a lot of questions so now all i say is just get the book don't upset them alone the book will just enlighten different different topics you never even imagine existing mm-hmm. in the Kosa culture especially if you live in the city and you want to connect your roots and understand the culture of the people i think after you read this book you will have a very softer heart towards uh, the Kosa culture because you understand the depth and, and the reasons why sometimes people do what they do in the culture so yeah those are my passing words <laughs> thank you oh, wow Thank you. Thank you so much, Mercy. In closing, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing such a big part of your life with us, as well as the knowledge that's passed on to you by the elders. Um, I want to thank you for honoring the Kosa Nation. We are definitely reviving our heritage with this book, and I hope anyone that reads it truly honors it for what it is, a gift and an answered prayer to all of us. I will continue to take this book with me everywhere I go because it brings me a new sense of pride in my culture and it gives me hope that we are powerful beyond measure as the do people. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Pagecast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews. So head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at Pagecast.